When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 65, Leon, whose revolution is it anyway? In the last episode, we met the city of Silk. Famed as a bastion for royalism, Leon was anything but. Thanks to a complex mixture of social, political and economic forces, Leon's experience of the revolution differed considerably to that of the capital. Yet some things remained the same. In this episode, Leon will not be spared the struggle between the Jacobins and a wide coalition of moderates, royalists, and even sans-culottes. Yes, even in the factional feuds of the nation's second city, the traditional script of the revolution is turned on its head. But before we get into it, a huge thank you to those people helping to keep Grey History on the air. For bonus episodes, a members-only chat room, and an ad-free version of the show, check out all the amazing perks that come with joining the Grey History community. There's links in the show notes and on the website, and members on the True Revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 66, Leon, Liberated City. It takes a tremendous amount of time to bring you the show that you've come to enjoy. So please help support history that isn't black and white and enjoy all the perks in the process. Come join the Grey History community today. It's with great pleasure that I get to introduce the newest members of the community. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens, Verla, Jesse, Cal, Francisco, Christina, Pamela, Mike and Alexander. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionary, Roberto. I hope you enjoyed your early access to this episode weeks ahead of the main show. Of course, all revolutions need their champions, so a special shout out to Cindy, George, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Adam, Tom, Eyal, Harold, David, Alistair, Kevin, Carl, Jeff, Ritas, and Hannah. Finally, one last thank you to the Pantheon of Greats, the heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Auger, Kevin, Scott, and Howard. Once again, thank you to everyone doing their part to keep Grey History going. Before we get into it, a final thank you to everyone who has been recommending the show to friends and family, leaving written reviews on Apple Podcasts, sharing the show on social media, or just doing something else to support grey history. Revolutions are only possible with the support of the people, so thank you so much for helping grey history. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it.
By our union, we have won out over the aristocracy and given ourselves a patriotic municipality. We have supported it with all our strength. We have been steadfast, vigilant, and wise. So declared Bimar, a former court clerk, in August 1792. A leading founder of the clubist movement in Lyon, Bimar was, in some ways, reflecting reality. In the preceding years, the intellectual bourgeoisie of the city had united with artisans and workers to create a prosperous revolutionary movement. By fostering neighbourhood political societies, the revolutionaries of Lyon had established an organisational machine which elected a new municipality, secured popular reforms and gave voice to some passive citizens which the National Assembly had tried to silence. But, in other ways, Bimar was masking reality as well. By August 1792, the union of the revolutionaries in Lyon was far from united. Support for the municipality was fraying, and differences over wise and vigilant policies threatened to split the revolutionaries right down the middle. You see, even prior to the fall of the monarchy on the 10th of August 1792, the revolutionaries of Lyon were starting to turn on each other. 1792 had brought tremendous and divisive challenges for the Rolonan municipality, and, just like in the capital, the hardships of that year divided those who had once worked hand in hand. The issues the Rolonans faced were multiple. Perhaps the most important was war. Conflict had decimated the export markets for the silk industry, with the courts of Vienna and Berlin now embittered enemies rather than eager customers. Unsurprisingly, unemployment jumped, and the hardship was subsequently made worse by the rapid inflation of the Assignar. War, of course, also contributed to the other problems facing the Rolonan municipality. The conflict made demands on manpower and horses, increasing the price of foodstuffs and basic commodities, which poor harvests had already made excessively expensive. Furthermore, the war amplified the perceived danger of counter-revolutionaries, both domestic and abroad. With Lyon so close to the frontier, non-constitutional clergy and emigrating nobles were a source of constant angst and suspicion. Likewise, the city's proximity to the front lines meant invasion and occupation was a very real threat. Remember, the border with Piedmont-Sardinia was just 50 miles, or 80 kilometres. Remember, the border with Piedmont-Sardinia was just 50 miles, or 80 kilometres. In many ways, throughout 1792, Lyon experienced the same phenomena that we're familiar with in the capital. Fears of counter-revolution and foreign invasion, the deteriorating war effort and its association with treasonous plots, the hardship and desperation caused by food scarcity and inflation. All of these factors fueled discontent with the government, as well as division amongst the revolutionaries themselves. In Paris, 
These grievances were initially aimed at the monarchy and the so-called Austrian committee hidden within the court. Over time, they were also fixed on the Brissoans, later known as the Girondins, who had led the nation to a theoretically easy war, only to shrink from the measures required to fight a terrible existential struggle. The sheer multitude of threats powered the rise of popular activism, the Sankulotte movement, and the radicalization of the Jacobin Club and its like-minded supporters. At a high level, these same developments were occurring in Lyon. And, just like the Brissoans of the capital, the Rolonans of Lyon were ill-prepared for the coming challenges. As occurred in Paris, throughout 1792, the political initiative started to pass from the relatively moderate revolutionaries to those willing to champion the needs and demands of the sans-culottes. This was driven by the factors already mentioned, along with the introduction of universal male suffrage in mid-1792. Like Paris, the clubs started to nominate far more radical individuals into leadership positions, both within the neighbourhood political societies as well as into government offices. This new leadership was willing to challenge the Rolonans, which had been installed over the previous years. Although their past success partially insulated their popularity, many artisans and newly enfranchised workers were growing increasingly frustrated by the moderate and legalistic approach of the Rolonan municipality. Food prices needed to come down. Non-juring clergy needed to be silenced. The war needed to be won, and work needed to be provided for the unemployed. If the Rolonans weren't willing to action these measures, measures which victory and security required, then perhaps someone else would. Hence the election of ever more radical officeholders in Lyon. And it's here that we arrive at one of the great Jacobin martyrs of the French Revolution. If Roland was Lyon's Brousseau, the local champion of Girondin values, then Joseph Chalet was Lyon's Robespierre. In fact, some would argue that he was more akin to Marat. Irrelevant of precisely where he sat on the Jacobin spectrum, like both men, Chalier is considered a martyr of the Jacobin cause, and historians of different ideological persuasions bitterly contest his legacy. An enigma to many, what can be said of Chalier is as follows. Aged in his early 40s when the Bastille was stormed, Chalier's background was, surprise, surprise, all to do with silk. A merchant by trade, he had travelled as far east as the Levant and as far west as Portugal, and it's claimed by some that he was actually expelled from Lisbon in 1783 due to vocal views denouncing despotism. Whether this is factual or not, Chalier was definitely an enthusiastic embracer of the revolution, and Chalier rushed to the capital in 1789 to see and feel the revolution firsthand. As early as 1790, when Lyon's aristocratic consulate was being overthrown, 
Chalier was vehemently denouncing the aristocratic spirit which corrupted the city. Depicting Leon as deceitful and untrustworthy, he even claimed that it harboured more sworn enemies of the revolution than any other city in France. Elected in November 1791 as a municipal officer, Chalier became a vocal defender of the common people. Although working alongside the Rolonnans, Chalier had always been more radical, eager, perhaps over-eager, to pursue counter-revolutionaries and an early critic of the rich. And it's here, as we touch on class divisions, that we find one of the most important differences between Roland and Chalier. While at times Roland was willing to publicly condemn the merchant community for their lack of civic virtue, the rich were by no means irredeemable. Roland and his associates generally thought that with the right education and appeals to self-interest, the wealthy could be won over to the revolutionary cause. Thus, the commercial elite were by no means natural enemies to the revolution, its values or its progression. Chalier begged to differ. For Chalier, the wealthy elite were inherently unpatriotic. They lacked civic-mindedness and were perhaps even beyond the point of redemption. With this stance, the struggles of Lyon were redefined as those between the rich and the poor, which naturally found a receptive audience in working communities that had long been exploited. In 1792, Chalier summed up the situation in Lyon. Lyon was always divided between a large number of privileged and oppressive rich people and a much larger number of poor people, crushed by the weight of burdens, degraded by that of humiliation. The first were indignant that others dared with them to contemplate the declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen. Hatred of equality was the source of the troubles in Lyon. These troubles began with the revolution. They continued. They still exist by the design and the hope of re-establishing the old regime. So, Joseph Chalier and what would become the Jacobins of Lyon stood apart from the Rolonans on multiple fronts. They had fundamentally different views on the inherent patriotism and civic-mindedness of the rich, as well as how to approach demands for price maximums, the pursuit of counter-revolutionaries, and the measures necessary to fight the revolutionary war. These views, at least for Chalet, had been derived from his experience in Paris. And yes, like the interior minister Roland, Chalier had spent a great deal of time in the capital in 1792. But his trip had unusual motivations and tremendous implications. As I mentioned previously, Chalet was elected to the Lyon municipality in November 1791, and it was in this position that he was perhaps a little too eager in pursuing counter-revolutionary plots. Zealous in defending the revolution, Chalier broke into private premises as he searched for royalist conspiracies. Needless to say, this earned him a grand total of zero friends 
amongst the city's elites. Having already picked fights with the more conservative department, these illegal searches resulted in being suspended from his office in January 1792. Unwilling to give up the fight, Chardet took himself off to Paris to present his case before the Legislative Assembly. But the Assembly was just a little busy, and it wasn't until after the fall of the monarchy, some seven months later, that the deputies agreed to restore Chalier to his post. In the meantime, Chalier had witnessed firsthand not only the divisions between the Jacobins and the Fillons of the Legislative Assembly, but also the emerging gulf within the Jacobins themselves. The Brissoans, who were the principal Jacobins of the Assembly, had become embroiled with the more radical elements of the society, most notably those who stood behind Robespierre and his anti-war coalition. As the war deteriorated, Robespierre and his allies were vindicated, and their power within the club rapidly rose. In the final months of the year, Brousseau and his Girondin allies were finally expelled from the club, cementing the success of the Montagnard faction. Witnessing this factionalization firsthand, Chalier had found himself in agreement with the position of the mountain. He shared their suspicions of the ambitious Brousseauans, and he saw in the mountain the best chance for defeating the dreaded counter-revolution. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Now exonerated by the Legislative Assembly, the reinstated Chalier returned to Lyon in the aftermath of the monarchy's collapse. Here, the Montagnard convert was determined to lead the Jacobin crusade in the nation's second city. Immediately upturning the status quo, Chalier mounted a popular campaign against the mercantile elites, the conservative department, and even the Rolonan municipality that had been elected by the coordinated actions of the neighbourhood clubs. Chalier and those like him tapped into long-held and growing discontent, especially towards local elites, 
emigrating nobles and the non-constitutional clergy, demanding an uncompromising pursuit of the counter-revolution. Chalier advocated measures to ensure that the rich were contributing appropriately to the worsening war effort. This not only included increased taxation, but potentially even the confiscation of property. Given the city's proximity to the frontiers and its long-held class tensions, such proposals received considerable support. Furthermore, Chalier embraced the economic, social and political demands of the sans-culottes including measures such as price controls, all of which were of course abhorrent to the legalistic and free market orientated Rolonans. Be that as it may, the Rolonans found themselves outgunned at the ballot box, as the Jacobins swept to power in municipal elections in late 1792. Although their success was dependent on high turnout from the poorest sections of the city, it was enough to overcome the more moderate Rolonans and usher in a new era of municipal politics. Interestingly, given Chalier's political program, some historians have even gone as far as to compare Chalier and his allies to the ultra-radical enraged of the capital. While Chalier was undoubtedly radical, this comparison is disputed. Historian Jean Jarez considers the Lyon Jacobins to have a more advanced social program than their peers of the capital, as does historian Takashi Koi. Koi even goes as far as to claim that the Lyon Jacobins were advocates of a social war against the rich, and that the group are distinct enough to be referred to as the Chaliers, rather than the more general label of the Jacobins. However, Others would argue that Chalier's social program aligned more closely with the mainstream Jacobins of the capital. Unlike Jarez, historian Georges Lefebvre is far from convinced that the local Jacobins deviated notably from their counterparts in Paris. Whatever the case may be, comparisons to the ultra-radicals of the capital are not the only ones being drawn. Chalier's combative approach occasionally draws comparisons to Marat. Chalier loudly defended the September massacres, and debatably helped to inspire the slaughter of prisoners in Lyon in the days that followed. While local detractors dubbed him a Mararist, and viewed these deaths as an unwanted importation of the capital's politics, some historians reject this characterization outright. Historian Camille Riffeter, for example, asserts that, unlike Marat, Chalier made no regular calls for mass bloodlettings. Furthermore, Riffeter claims that Chalier's most extreme rhetoric tended to coincide with the times where his personal safety was endangered. Whether more of a mainstream Jacobin or an ultra-radical enraged, whether more of a Robespierreist or a Mararist, Chalier was undeniably a committed, energetic and forceful revolutionary, one determined to remake the city of silk. So, while Chalier's exact beliefs and political alignments are shrouded in ambiguity, what can be said is that upon his return to Lyon, the radicals were ascendant in the clubist movement. By the end of 1792, the takeover of Lyon by Chalet and his Jacobin allies 
seemed almost complete. Jaye had lost a bitterly contested election for the position of mayor, but his associates nonetheless dominated the new municipal government. Fresh elections had fundamentally transformed the municipality, not only in terms of personnel, but also in terms of social composition. Under the Rolonans, Lyon's municipality had primarily been dominated by men of property. Sure, some artisans had been elected to office, but they remained in the overwhelming minority. However, as of the municipal election of late 1792, the artisans reigned supreme. Those who worked with their hands were elected en masse, and officials from the poorest sections well and truly outnumbered those who came from the city's wealthier corners. Historian Bill Edmonds characterises the electoral outcome as an unprecedented victory for the plebeians over the propertied classes. Critically, the victory of the Jacobins didn't stop there. Chalier and his allies had also come to dominate the Club Central, the institution which had been so critical for the coordinated success and influence of the neighbourhood clubs in 1791 and 1792. With the office of mayor eventually being occupied by a Jacobin ally in the following year, by the end of 1792, it looked like the city's government and the city's clubs were firmly under the control of the Jacobins. Horrified and dejected by what had transpired, multiple allies of Roland wrote to the now reinstalled interior minister, hoping for assistance from the capital. As one former mayor put it, The least of their faults is ineptitude and absolute ignorance. All have been made in the same workshop, by Chalier. Among the 20 municipal officers, one finds 14 scoundrels, all head cutters. Having taken over the municipal government from the Girondin-aligned Rolonans, the radical Jacobins went to work. Here again, we see Leon pioneering revolutionary policies and institutions, once more running far ahead of the capital, despite the city's common reputation as a royalist stronghold. Initiatives such as price maximums, food subsidies, and even a revolutionary tribunal were all introduced. Furthermore, in February 1793, the Lyon Jacobins really ramped up the pressure against the long-denounced counter-revolution. Lists of suspects were drawn up and arrested, while the guillotine was set up to deliver fear and justice to the enemies of the people. Facing resistance to these policies, the Jacobins attempted to solidify their position, and proposals were put forward to co-opt the network of neighbourhood clubs, transforming the club central's functions and replacing the institution with one singular Jacobin club. In short, Chalet and his allies were aggressively pursuing the political, social and economic demands of the Sankulots, and Leon's Jacobins were at the height of their power. But this power was built on the flimsiest of foundations. It will not be a surprise to hear that all of these measures were met with tremendous hostility. The sheer radicalism of this program, 
one that was months ahead of the capital, spurred the formation of a wide anti-Jacobin coalition. The Republican Rolanans, essentially the local Girondins, were of course horrified by these developments. No surprise given how well we know the Girondin and Jacobin feud of the capital. They saw Chalier as a tool of Robespierre and his populist policies as a combination of unworkable, nonsensical, and an affront to the natural rights of man. From the price maximums to the revolutionary tribunal, from the rumoured confiscation of property to the defence of the terrible September massacres, pretty much everything the Leon Jacobins did both alarmed and appalled the Rolonans. But Jacobin radicalism encouraged others to get off the sidelines, including those once associated with the Fillons, as well as committed royalists who had been keeping their head down for the previous years. Chalier's vocal hostility towards the rich, his obsession with violently eliminating the counter-revolution, and his radical social and economic policies compelled others to act. Much of the city's bourgeoisie was soon lining up against the local Jacobins, even if once upon a time they had either been politically apathetic or squabbling amongst themselves. And it's in this newfound unity of the Lyon bourgeoisie that we find an interesting development. It could be argued that the Jacobin municipality of 1792 and 93 had managed to do what the nobility of the old regime could not. The radicalism of the Jacobins and the social upheaval caused by a municipality dominated by artisans had helped to unite the middle classes of the city. Prior to the Jacobin municipality, men of property had always dominated the constitutional authorities. That was in fact what the original National Assembly had tried to ensure with its infamous distinction between active and passive citizens. But by the end of 1792, such a situation was now a thing of the past. While the Jacobin officials were by no means poor, many were successful artisans with disposable income, the social composition of the municipality had fundamentally transformed. Combined with the radical policies of the Jacobins, historian Bill Edmonds argues that this produced a sort of social trauma for the bourgeoisie of Lyon. A trauma that was critical in helping to form a coherent class consciousness and the impetus to act in union. Having once been hopelessly divided in their attitudes towards the crown, the nobility, and the original revolution of 1789, the bourgeoisie of Lyon were closing ranks, uniting as one, and focusing on a common enemy, the Jacobins. Perhaps this threat alone was manageable, given Chalier's support amongst the working cohorts of the city. After all, support for the Jacobins in Lyon had never been socially widespread, so much as it had been centred on the poorest sections. Huge turnout in the poorest neighbourhoods, combined with popular support from artisans and other workers, had delivered electoral success. So long as the Jacobins could maintain the support of Lyon's Saint-Culottes, their power could theoretically be maintained. But that's the thing. This support fractured. 
Throughout the first half of 1793, the Jacobins started to lose their political base. For all the fanfare, the new municipality was struggling to implement its most fundamental promises. The high prices of food offer a prime example. Despite guarantees of price maximums and even efforts to open ovens to supply cheap bread, the Jacobins failed to produce any lasting results. As a mere municipality, the Jacobins lacked the financial and legal means to deliver cheap bread consistently. Price subsidies proved to be prohibitively expensive, and even the new ovens ran at such a loss that they were closed after only a month. Unable to deliver on core electoral promises, the neighbourhood clubs started to lose patience, and vocal discontent could soon be found. None of this was helped by the fact that the assignat, the revolution's paper currency, was rapidly deteriorating, reflecting in part the worsening war effort. All of these factors were outside the direct control of a mere municipal government, but hostility towards that government was forthcoming nonetheless. It was not long before the resulting frustrations manifested into opportunities for political opponents. With the city's elites and middle classes forming an anti-Jacobin alliance, and with elements of their base wavering in their enthusiastic support, the Jacobins of Lyon made one crucial mistake. They picked a fight with the very institutions which had been critical to the local revolutionary movement, the neighbourhood clubs. From the ideological perspective of the Jacobins, their municipality represented the people's will. As a result, those opposed to its popular policies were at best misguided and at worst counter-revolutionary. However, Lyon's unique history meant that the neighbourhood clubs, the political societies which had been fostered in each of the city's 32 sections, also had a claim to representing the people's will. After all, it had been these institutions which championed the people's interests in recent years, most notably while passive citizens had been denied the right to vote. In the aftermath of the Jacobin takeover of Lyon's municipality in late 1792, the Rolonans dusted off their old playbook and took to the clubs. Schisms emerged across the city as individual neighbourhood clubs squabbled or split in response to radical Jacobin policies. The hard-line position of the Jacobins on issues such as the King's trial and later proposals to purge the Girondin deputies further fueled these inter-societal tensions. Perhaps most noteworthy were Jacobin actions in February, which spooked many into the ranks of the emerging opposition. After a secret meeting, the local Jacobin authorities suddenly arrested more than 300 individuals in an effort to crack down on rumoured counter-revolutionary plots. Alongside these extraordinary arrests were other measures, such as the creation of a new revolutionary tribunal, something which at this point in time did not exist in the capital. The Jacobins viewed these efforts as justified as the Republic struggled with so many existential threats. Their opponents, however, disagreed. To their detractors, these actions reinforced the perception that the new Jacobin municipality was a real and present danger 
to the individual liberties of Leon's citizens. Consequently, the battle in the neighbourhood clubs escalated rapidly, coinciding with the intensification of the factional feuds of Paris. As the initial months of 1793 passed, Lyon and its famous network of neighbourhood clubs was rapidly fracturing. Some sectional societies continued to support the Jacobin municipality, along with the Club Centrale, which the Jacobins now controlled. Others, however, were becoming the bastions of moderation, or counter-revolutionary reaction, depending on one's point of view. Critically, both the Jacobin municipality and the opposing neighbourhood clubs were laying claim to popular legitimacy. Both stylized themselves as the true embodiment of the people's will. And it's here that we get a fascinating development. As the struggle escalated between the Jacobins and their opponents, the moderates of Lyon made a brilliant strategic move. In their battle to claim the mantle of being the true representatives of the people's will, the anti-Jacobin coalition looked to Paris. Specifically, they sought to replicate the popular institutions which their Girondin allies had ironically tried to tame and suppress. The moderates of Lyon looked to the sections. To back up a bit, by early 1793, Lyon had a well-established tradition of neighbourhood clubs, individual political societies that resided within each section. But these sectional clubs were not the sections themselves. The clubs still had joining fees. They still had monthly contributions. They were still, to an extent, exclusive. In short, they were still clubs. So, in an effort to better secure the legitimacy and political power that came with the claim of representing popular sovereignty, the moderates of Lyon turned to Paris. Reusing the tactics once deployed by radical democrats, the moderates sought to recreate the power and autonomy of the capital's 48 sections. By this time, the permanence of the Parisian sections had long been established. Each of the city's 48 sections, the individual wards if you like, had their own sectional assemblies, where local residents could debate political matters and elect officials. Over time, sections not only had their own assemblies, but also committees and various office holders, such as the surveillance committees, formally decreed by the National Convention in March 1793. Lyon's unique revolutionary development had fostered sectional clubs, but it hadn't really fostered the sections themselves. So, the moderates tapped into long-held neighbourhood identities, the existing club network, and the example of the capital to install sectional institutions. Before long, the sections of Lyon were claiming to be the truest and purest expression of the people's will. And thus, the sections claimed the legitimacy and political power associated with that assertion. Needless to say, the Jacobin municipality was having none of it. Throughout the first five months of 1793, Lyon's commune battled with the moderate sections, the moderate clubs, and the more conservative department in a tug-of-war between the Jacobins and anti-Jacobin coalitions of the city. 
Both camps laid claim to representing the people, and they used a variety of legal and more questionable means to further their cause. In the process, attitudes on both sides hardened. The Jacobins saw conspiracy, intrigue, betrayal, measures deployed to stifle their popular, just and legitimate agenda. Elections had empowered them to deliver a radical mandate, and they were being stymied by the long-decried counter-revolutionary elements of Lyon. Their opponents, however, had a different view. They saw in the town hall nothing but fanaticism, extremism, and restrictions, if not blatant violations, on their rights and liberties. Ironically, throughout this struggle, the anti-Jacobin coalition was at times aided, unintentionally, by the Jacobins of the capital. For example, the Montagnard deputies of the convention had succeeded in March 1793 to formally create surveillance committees in the sections across the country. This, in and of itself, was an empowerment of the sections, something not particularly helpful for the Lyon Jacobins trying to put the new sectional assemblies back in their box. But the decree actually went further. It also authorised the sectional assemblies to supervise the surveillance committees. This again was an explicit empowerment of the sections. It gave the sections of Lyon further justifications to sit regularly, if not permanently. So while the Jacobin municipality of Lyon was trying to curtail the power and autonomy of the new sectional movement, the Jacobins of the capital were helping to pass legislation that, inadvertently, was working against their regional allies. Now, before we discuss where all of this went, I do want to take one moment just to step back and soak all of this in. Because what we're witnessing here turns on its head the traditional Parisian-centric narrative of the French Revolution. We have already seen substantial ways in which Lyon deviated from the capital. At times, Lyon lagged the broader revolution, such as in 1789 and 1790, when it took many months for a new municipality and the National Guard to replace the existing institutions of the old regime. We've also seen Lyon pioneer the revolution. The efforts of the Rolonans to establish a network of neighbourhood clubs, which successfully coordinated electoral success, was unmatched elsewhere in France. Likewise, the Jacobin municipality, which followed the Rolonans, attempted to institute revolutionary policies and institutions well ahead of the capital. But here, in the struggle between the Jacobin municipality and the moderate clubs and sections, we find familiar dynamics. Except they're completely reversed. And they're reversed in more ways than you might expect. So far in our experiences with the capital, the sections are generally bastions of revolutionary radicalism. Yes, some sections are more radical than others. And yes, some are even moderate in inclination. But by and large, the sections of Paris have been critical in promoting radical ideas and pushing the revolution into radical undertakings. In 1792, for example, in the lead-up to the overthrow of the monarchy, it was the sections of Paris which had led the way. The most radical sections championed universal male suffrage, 
and refused to recognise Louis XVI as their king. Likewise, it was in the sections that vocal calls for a republic could be heard, and ultimately it was representatives of the sections which formed the revolutionary authorities that spearheaded the monarchy's removal. Furthermore, in the months after the 10th of August, it was the sections which had routinely petitioned both the Parisian municipality and the National Convention for the political, social and economic demands of the Saint-Colottes. Filled with mainstream Jacobins, as well as ultra-radicals such as the enraged, the sections of Paris continually pushed a wide-ranging and radical agenda. Ultimately, this culminated with the purging of the Girondins, another insurrection that was led by revolutionaries connected to the sections. Keep in mind that the Avicii Assembly and its Central Revolutionary Committee had been empowered by delegates from the city's more radical sections. Of course, all of these developments had caused the Girondins of the Convention a great deal of angst. They viewed both the sections and their allies in the Paris Commune as consistently exceeding their constitutional authority. It's for this reason that they tried, time and time again, to suppress and curtail the sections of the capital. Likewise, it's for this reason that the Federalist rebels of Normandy and Brittany explicitly demanded that sectional assemblies no longer sit permanently. But here, in Lyon, the situation was turned on its head. It's the moderates who took to the sections and sought to use the sections to undermine the established authorities. This time, those authorities were not the Girondins of the Convention, but rather the Jacobins of Lyon's municipality. In both cases, the moderates of Lyon and the radicals of Paris turned to the same tactics. The group that was out of power sought to use the sections as a means of claiming legitimacy and substantial political influence. Likewise, for both the Girondins of the Convention and the Jacobins of Lyon's municipality, the group that was in power sought to eradicate the permanence and autonomy of the sections. The end result is an inconsistent ideological mess. The Jacobins of the capital championed the position of the sections, at times supporting elements of direct democracy. They sought to empower the sections through various means, much to the frustration of both the Girondins and even members of the Plain. However, their allies in Lyon were doing the exact opposite. There, the Jacobin municipality was doing all it could to curtail the sections and deny them the same prerogatives and responsibilities that their peers in the capital had secured thanks to Montagnard's support. Likewise, the Girondins of Paris denounced the excesses of the sections, while their allies in Lyon, the Rolonnans, were embracing the sections with enthusiasm. Thus, any idea that the sections were destined to be Jacobin strongholds should be dispelled. Perhaps it's more accurate to say that the sections presented a fantastic opportunity to challenge the established authorities, irrelevant of the political inclination. Yet, the deviation of Lyon from the capital actually went further. 
If you take the time to look at the actions of working people, the traditional alliance between the Jacobins and the Sanculots also comes into question. We have seen in the capital how the mountain positioned itself to be the standard bearers of the Parisian Sanculots. Adopting radical political, social, and economic policies, the Montagnards had secured their position as the self styled champions of the people, neutralizing, at least for a time, the threat of the growing ultra radical movement of the enraged. But despite Leon's Jacobins attempting to implement similar measures even earlier than their Parisian counterparts, by May 1793, the Jacobins were losing support amongst this key constituency. In fact, as mid-1793 approached, the Sanculots of Lyon were becoming increasingly non-committal, adopting a more politically apathetic posture, and at times even embracing the moderation of the anti-Jacobin coalition. Which presents us with a question. Why? Why was Lyon once again deviating from the traditional script of the capital, and for that matter, deviating significantly? The reasons for this, and their importance, are of course disputed amongst historians. Some of the factors relate to matters already discussed. One issue was the inability of the Jacobin municipality to actually deliver on its promise of cheap bread, causing great frustration amongst working people facing both food shortages and high inflation. Another was the feuds between the Jacobins and the anti-Jacobins in the sectional clubs and the new sectional assemblies. These latter institutions could tap into the support associated with long-standing neighbourhood identities and a related political culture which emphasised the supremacy of local politics. But in the city of Lyon, it should be no surprise whatsoever that silk also played a part. Over time, it became clear to some sans in particular the better-off artisans, that Jacobin policies could in fact jeopardise their own economic and social interests. But in the city of Lyon, it should be no surprise whatsoever that silk also played a part. Over time, it became clear to some sans in particular better-off artisans, that Jacobin policies could in fact jeopardise their own economic and social interests. It was all well and good for the Jacobins to talk about confiscating property and taxing the wealthy, but in a luxury goods industry, average workers had a range of dependencies on the rich. It was the rich that purchased their products, and it was the wealthiest merchants who supplied artisans with work, materials, and opportunities to produce goods that would result in payment and, ultimately, food. A war against the unpatriotic rich, even if it was just limited to those deemed counter-revolutionary, presented significant risks. Making war on one's customer and employer was rarely the safest path for full employment and full stomachs. Furthermore, Jacobin ideology, not just Jacobin politics, endangered the interests of the silk trade. In the virtuous republic the Jacobins espoused, austerity was prized. And, just to be clear, there was nothing austere about silk. Silk, the backbone of Lyon's economy, 
was a luxury good. It was opulent, indulgent, extravagant, magnificent. It was the antithesis to the strict, simple and sober values of the emerging Jacobin Republic. Thus, Jacobin policy and Jacobin ideology might very well endanger the economic lifeblood of Lyon. Indeed, historian Antonio de Francesco found evidence that some workers acknowledged their interdependence with the bourgeoisie and concluded that the Rolonans offered the best pathway forward to the social and political order required for a prosperous Lyon. Combined with the municipality's lack of success in delivering key policies and its conflict with the neighbourhood clubs and sectional assemblies, the Jacobins had managed to isolate and marginalise some of their most important supporters. Whether they rallied to the forces of moderation or simply joined the ranks of the politically apathetic, the Jacobins had fractured their traditional base of support. The consequences would be deadly. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Grey History needs your help to stay on the air. For bonus episodes, episode extras, early access, and an ad-free version of the show, support the podcast today by joining the Grey History community. You can also join the great conversations happening on the community Discord and the new video call discussions as well. So help be the change you want to see, help produce history that isn't black and white, and help ensure that one of your favourite independent podcasts can keep bringing you the show you've come to love. Those members on the True Revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 65, Whose Revolution Is It Anyway? 
Support Grey History Today. There's links in the show notes and on the website. Once again, we see in the city of Lyon a fundamental deviation from the Parisian playbook. Moderates, and even conservatives, had flocked to the sections and the clubs as a means of challenging the established authorities, a development almost unimaginable in the capital. Likewise, some elements of the Saint-Coulottes had abandoned the Jacobins, but in the most unexpected manner. In Paris, we saw how the mountain was at risk of losing the Saint-Coulottes to the forces on its left. Then it was the ultra-radical enraged ones which threatened to supplant the Jacobins as the true champions of the people. But in Lyon, we find a fascinating twist. There, some disgruntled artisans rallied behind not the ultra-radicals, but rather the forces of moderation. Lyon's unique social, political and economic characteristics played a huge role in this development, and they would continue to shape the city's future during the imminent Federalist revolts. All of this underscores why we have taken the time to explore the Federalist revolts in depth. The French Revolution in France looked very different to the French Revolution in Paris, and this difference compels us to reassess and augment many traditional narratives. To turn our attention back to Lyon, the deteriorating situation reached its zenith in May 1793. As the factional menace consumed the convention with bitter infighting, Lyon was similarly paralysed by the struggle between the Jacobin municipality and a broad coalition of moderate and conservative opponents. But in mid-May, it appeared that the Jacobins might have caught a lucky break. In May, new representatives on mission arrived from the capital, many of whom were deputies who associated with the capital's Jacobins. Even for those deputies who were primarily concerned with the nearby Army of the Alps, the situation in Lyon was problematic. After all, Lyon's arsenal, military hospital, and critical role in supplying the front lines were all of vital importance. That's of course in addition to the fact that the nation's second city seemed to be on the brink of civil war. The presence of the new representatives on mission offered a commanding boost for the increasingly besieged municipality. Ideologically, the Jacobin deputies were ready to support the patriotic authorities against the aristocrats and reactionaries who were fostering counter-revolution. But, for all the aid that the representatives supplied, they debatably caused far greater damage. Fixated on the war and empowered with the authority of the National Convention, the new representatives decreed a range of controversial measures aimed at bolstering the war effort. New taxes were to be levied on the rich, and those National Guards deemed unfit for duty were to be disarmed. Perhaps most importantly, their weapons were to be handed over to new revolutionary battalions, controlled in part by the Jacobin representatives of the convention and a newly installed local committee of public safety, which was, surprise, surprise, also comprised of Jacobins. Interestingly, 
it was envisioned that these new battalions were to be used not only to defend Lyon, but to actually go and fight the royalist insurrection in the Vendée. Unsurprisingly, these measures were extremely unpopular. Remember, some historians argue that military conscription had helped to trigger the Vendean revolt in the first place. And here, similar practices were being used in attempt to suppress that revolt. But, even more importantly, the anti-Jacobin coalition saw a trap. By disarming certain citizens, the Jacobin municipality would secure a monopoly on force, preventing Leon from conducting its sacred right to insurrection should the municipality become tyrannical. And to be clear, the idea that the municipality would become tyrannical was far from a hypothetical, at least from the perspective of its opponents. By mid-May, the struggle had become so intense that the Jacobin municipality had declared that it would arrest individuals organising unauthorised sectional assemblies. Its argument was that the sections were sitting illegally, and thus it had the right to arrest leading sectional officers. Of course, the anti-Jacobins in the sections, the clubs and the department disagreed, arguing through a combination of precedents and claims to popular sovereignty that it was in fact the municipality who was in the wrong. They denounced the local Jacobins for trying to suppress the sectional assemblies and thus infringe on the rights and liberties of the people. So given the fact that this struggle was now resulting in arrests, and given the fact that the Jacobin officials were demanding a revolutionary tribunal to deliver justice to the detained, think chop-chop, all of these measures from the representatives on mission caused a great deal of consternation. In fact, it merely amplified hostility towards the Jacobins, whether they be in the town hall or the national convention. By the last week of May, as the purge of the Girondins rapidly approached in the capital, the ranks of the anti-Jacobin coalition were swelling in Lyon. Notable anti-Jacobin elements could be found in more than two-thirds of the city's sections, a number which had risen considerably throughout the month. Despite the claims of some Jacobin-orientated historians that the following insurrection was a carefully planned conspiracy, the evidence for this is, well, not exactly forthcoming. In fact, historian Bill Edmund asserts that even in late May, the sections actually intended to use peaceful and legal means in their ongoing struggles against the municipality. Given the fact that the Girondins seemed to have gotten the upper hand in Paris with the establishment of the new Commission of Twelve, it's possible that the moderates felt that support from the capital would be forthcoming with time. It's also possible that they believed that the situation continued to evolve to their advantage. Late May saw popular unrest, this time in the form of a crowd breaking into a warehouse and selling off the seized butter. As these goods were destined for the army, this unrest further exacerbated tensions between the local Jacobins and the poorest cohorts of the city, despite the fact that these cohorts were theoretically the bedrock of Jacobin support. Combined with the ongoing arrests of leading members of the sectional movement, 
the local Jacobins were sitting on a powder keg of discontent. A powder keg that they had done so much to create. But if the city of Lyon was ready to ignite thanks to local Jacobins, it was their allies from the capital that helped to provide the spark. One of the representatives on mission, a deputy named Dubois-Quincey, was residing in nearby Grenoble, overseeing the Army of the Alps. Hearing of the commotion in Lyon, including raids on army supplies, Dubois-Quincey decided to act. On the 27th of May, news arrived in Lyon that the representative was returning at the head of a column of armed soldiers. Furthermore, two other deputies on mission arrived at the town hall to investigate the recent pillaging of army supplies, at least officially. The anti-Jacobins feared something more sinister was afoot. At a time of military setbacks, why were troops being pulled back from the frontier? Furthermore, why were the Jacobins of the municipality so eager for their arrival? With efforts to disarm citizens already provoking angst, moderate sections came forth to demand an immediate explanation. As one put it, its residents wanted to know whether they should fear and watch, arm themselves, or sleep in safety as troops marched on Lyon. The next day, on the 28th of May, a delegation from a subset of the city's sections hastily came together to demand that the representatives on mission suspend both the movement of troops and the local municipality. When they refused, the moderate sections turned to their allies in the more conservative department, which agreed with their demands to take appropriate measures to protect the city. The National Guard was summoned and the battle was on. During the night, both sides hastily assembled their own forces. The Jacobins in the municipality were bolstered by the arrival of cavalry from the Army of the Alps, who confirmed that more troops were on their way. Efforts were undertaken to secure the arsenal, but that fell to the anti-Jacobin coalition shortly after dawn the following morning. As such, the Jacobins made their stand at the town hall, deploying cannon, professional soldiers, and National Guardsmen. Notably absent were masses of sans-culottes keen to defend their supposed political allies. Some battalions of volunteers were briskly assembled, but the wider populace was hardly flooding into the streets like Parisians had once done to defend the new National Assembly. Also absent were even some of the National Guardsmen the municipality thought it could rely upon. It had summoned 14 battalions to its defence, but only nine actually arrived in any considerable number. Of these nine, all but one came from the poorest sections of the city. Opposing them, the broad anti-Jacobin coalition was led in part by a new committee comprised of the moderate sections which were now in a state of insurrection. Supported by a clear majority of the city's neighbourhoods and by the departmental authorities, the insurrectionists were able to mobilise an impressive 18 National Guard battalions. That's double what the municipality had mustered, and it included three battalions that the Jacobins had actually called upon for assistance. 
with the arsenal secured on the morning of the 29th, momentum seemed to be swinging towards the insurrectionists. Initial skirmishes broke out between both camps, but the bloodshed was relatively contained. Later accounts would accuse the Jacobins of committing a massacre, but it's possible, even perhaps probable, that the entire day saw only a few dozen killed. Nonetheless, with fighting erupting, the insurrectionists formally declared the dissolution of the municipal government. This outcome was achieved shortly thereafter. Heavily outnumbered, the Jacobins besieged in the town hall were defeated by the late afternoon. Charlet and the other so-called tyrants were promptly detained. With the municipality overthrown, their allies, the Jacobin representatives on mission, had little choice but to submit. The next day, the deputies succumbed to public pressure and formally sanctioned these events. With the authority of the National Convention, the representatives endorsed a new provisional municipality and orders were given for the troops to return to the Army of the Alps. In short, the insurrectionists of Lyon had won. With the sections working in unison, the moderates had once again repeated the radical playbook of the capital, ejecting the established authorities through coordinated action and superior command of the National Guard. This is what the sections of Paris had done so effectively when they had toppled the monarchy on the 10th of August 1792. But this is also what the sections of Paris would go on to do just a few days later when the Girondins of the National Convention were purged on the 2nd of June 1793. In fact, you may recall that the convention's session on the 2nd of June started rather chaotically, in part because news had arrived of Lyon's municipal revolution. Or perhaps counter-revolution. And therein lies the problem. From the perspective of Lyon's victorious moderates, the anti-Jacobin coalition had just liberated the city. But from the perspective of the victorious Jacobins in the capital, Lyon now needed liberation. That liberation would prove to be bloody, brutal, and one of the most controversial acts of the Reign of Terror. Thank you for listening to episode 65, Leon, Whose Revolution Is It Anyway? In the next episode, we will witness the Federalist Revolt of Leon, from its insurrection to its siege to the infamous Reign of Terror. We'll be unpacking the grey in all its fascinating ambiguity. Community members on the true revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 66. Between now and the next episode, if you could find just two minutes to support the show and join the great history community, that would be amazing. These episodes take roughly 50 hours to produce, and I'm struggling to make great history sustainable. The best thing that you can do to ensure that there's more great history waiting for you tomorrow is by making a small contribution when main episodes are released. So please come join the community and enjoy all the perks in the process, including bonus episodes, mini episodes, and an ad-free version of the show. There's links in the show notes and on the website. Before we go, one last heartfelt thank you to those members of the Grey History community 
for keeping grey history on the air. A special shout out again to the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Borger, Kevin, Scott and Howard. Thank you for listening, stay safe and have a great day. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I interrupt this regular programming to bring you some alarming news. There's been some counter-revolutionary activity. I suppose it's a mark of the show's growing popularity, but unfortunately some reactionary fun sponges have recently left Grey History's first one and two star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Usually, I would ignore such unenlightened behaviour and consider it an inevitable achievement of all noteworthy podcasts. But, besides complaining about my shitty jokes and apparently lack of detail, yes, you heard right, these reviews are quite literally impacting the discoverability of the show for new listeners. That, of course, is jeopardising this experiment in full-time production, which I think we can all agree we don't want to jeopardise. So, if you listen to Apple Podcasts in particular, and you haven't already done so, if you could please leave a written review, that would be absolutely amazing. Just go to Grey History in the app and scroll down to the review section and help me expunge this counter-revolutionary plot. Thank you again for all your help, and now back to the show.